2020 was a challenge we all wanted to leave behind. I wanted to leave behind. This summer felt like we were getting back to normal, and I thought for sure, like, at least in southern Indiana, forget what's happening on the coast. We're just going to continue on because we're over it. And then school starts, and mass mandates for all our kids and everything like that makes everything feel crazy, right? I, th- I think my kids experienced more drama last year, even just tension between mom and dad and their teachers um, than they've ever felt. And I think that's probably true for a lot of kids. And um, that's not just like, oh no, coronavirus, what do we do? And masks and all that stuff. It's also uh, the way that politics seeped into the classroom, um, even at a Christian school like ECS. It made things challenging for us as parents. Made things challenging for our kids to have to live between the tension of what we talk about at home and what their teachers are talking to them about at school. So before we get going this morning, as we start the school year, uh, I want to talk to the kids that are still in the room for just a minute. Today's passage begins this way. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Kids, God was wise when he gave you your parents. He knew what he was doing. Your parents love you better than anybody in this world can. No teacher who's responsible for 30, 40, 50, 100 kids can love you and care for you and know you the way that your parents do. You're going to go your whole adult lives realizing that your parents knew a whole lot of things better than you thought they did and wishing that you had listened sooner. And that's not going to change. Because your parents are here and they want to be godly and they want you to be godly. And that makes them miles ahead of you and miles ahead of most of your teachers, maybe not in geometry or calculus or Latin American history or whatever they teach in school, but in wisdom, in wisdom. So if you feel tension this year between your parents and your teachers, I'm sorry, that's the world we live in. I'm sorry, that's the world that you live in. If you, t- if you feel tension about things your parents have taught you or things that your teachers are saying about the world, we all want you to grow up and be better than all of us. We all want you to grow into wise and godly and mature adults who think for yourselves. Okay? We need you to do, do those things, but in order to do those things, you have to build on the wisdom of God. And that starts with God's word, and then it moves to your parents that he gave you in his wisdom. Okay? even when it feels hard. Okay. So one thing I wanted to say, just out of the gate right away, because we're all going to have these struggles over the course of the next year. We've all been having them in different ways and everything just keeps intensifying, right? So I also wanted to talk to just us as a church family. Uh, Pastors are fathers in the faith and don't worry, I don't have a big head about that. Uh, One of my favorite quotes about pastors is from John Calvin who said that uh, pastors, God often puts your inferiors as your pastors so that you have to be humble and submit to somebody who's stupider than you. So that's one of my favorites. Um, Another is by the Apostle Paul, who just said, who's sufficient for these things? Nobody, not me, okay? Um, But there are a couple more things that I want to address before we get started. Like I said, we all wanted, hoped, 
imagine that things would be going to business as usual. And we're looking at, I've been thinking about the fall this way. Look at the seats that are full versus the seats that are empty and the kids that are all over there in the other room. And God's blessing this church and it's growing. And we need to be thinking about getting out of this space and getting into the gym over there. So that's what I've been thinking about. We need to be thinking about expanding our classrooms. We need to be thinking about Sunday school and membership and small groups so that we can grow deeper in discipleship and move beyond just the Sunday morning service. That's where my focus on the fall has been. And we've been talking and we are in fact making plans to move to the gym in by like mid-September. That's our hope and what we're working toward. What I hadn't been thinking about is Oh no, what if mass mandates come back? Oh no, what if vaccine ma- mandates become a thing? Oh no, what if we go into lockdowns? Oh no, what if the Y closes on us and shuts us out? So uh, the elephants walked back into the room and I just want to acknowledge the elephants in the room. And those things are a possibility from at least outside of this room. Last year across the country, churches not knowing what to do or who to trust and fearing the worst, fearing that God was visiting judgment on us through a plague, shut doors and submitted to the authorities that God himself had placed over us, followed guidelines. Churches were right to do that sort of thing. They were not wrong. But we've lived with this for a year and a half. And so I wanted to address just some things, okay, from the standpoint of where I'm at and where I'd like us to be as a church as we move into the fall and whatever lies before us. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a scientist. I'm also not a civil authority. I'm not in charge of matters of public health, but I am a pastor and that makes me a doctor of the soul of the inner man. And so that's what pastors are. That doesn't make me infallible. It just makes me responsible. Responsible to make decisions and judgments about the interplay between our physical well-being and our spiritual well-being. Our souls are eternal. Death isn't the end. The body isn't everything. And we've seen the impact of placing the concern for our bodies above the concern for our souls over the past year. For the sake of our souls, and even for the sake of our bodies. We felt it spiritually and physically across the country. We felt it in our families, in our homes, in our churches. And it's been catastrophic. So hear what I'm about to say. Some of what I'm about to say may be subject to change. But as of right now, Church of the King has no intention to stop worshiping the living God together as a people, no matter what happens over the next couple of months. We don't have any intention of stopping. We also don't have any intention of enforcing mask or vaccine mandates. Those are matters of conscience, and that's how we see it. If you believe that a mask will help you and protect you if you feel vulnerable, if you believe that it will help and protect your neighbor, good. By all means, wear a mask. If you've been vaccinated, if you want to be vaccinated, if you believe others should be vaccinated, good. If you don't, that's okay too. We're not going to fight over it. We're not going to divide over it. We're not going to argue about it. We're making plans still, just like we were to move into the gym. We're going to keep on moving that direction. The YMCA shuts us out. We'll look for other options. We'll look for other options. If the YMCA asks that we mask, We'll consider things. They've been really gracious with us and really good hosts. And we want to be good guests. But we'll consider our options. At the end of the day, we have to do what pleases God and what's best for our people and what's best for our kids. My principal concern is the spiritual health of this church, of our souls. 
of our families, of our children, of our community, of greater Evansville. And we can't continue to sacrifice, sacrifice our spiritual health on the altar of a disease that, so far as we know, has up till now had a 99% survival rate. But we're not going to divide over it, okay? We're not going to divide over it. It's hard to know what to do and how to do it, okay? Everybody's doing the best they can. And we're going to trust everybody here that we're loving each other the best that we can, okay? So that's where I stand. That's where I'd like us as a church to stand. And you should be asking a question right now, which is, on what ground? By what authority do I just get to stand up and decide that's what we are and that's where we stand? Some of you come from different church backgrounds um, where pastors just do what they want to do and maybe gather a leadership team around them of yes men, okay? And then they make all the decisions and then you just better get online or go somewhere else. That is not how we want this church to work. That is not how it is designed to work. But it is a church plant, which means that we're in this in-between stage where the way we want things to work and the way that they are working, we're just not there yet. There's a lot of things that have to come into, into place. So I want to explain, at the risk of boring you, just a couple of things about our polity so that you understand how we want things to work and how you, can, how you fit okay, into decisions like this. Our church government is essentially Presbyterian, which all that means is we believe in the leadership of elders. We believe Jesus leads his church in the local expression of it through a plurality of elders, not just me making decisions. And we believe that those elders should be lay elders, not the pastor who's paid to stand up here, but people from among this body. Okay? So the way that that works is the members of the church identify from among ourselves who God is qualified and equipped to lead the church forward and make decisions. Nominated, selected, voted on by you. We have membership, which we don't have yet, working on, okay? We'll explain more of these things in our membership class when we have it. We'll have membership. Then in time, we'll have uh, elders and deacons that you'll select for yourselves to lead you and care for you. And hopefully those elders will call me to be the pastor of this church. <laughs> and listen, I know that sounds like a, a, a workaround, but it's important. It's important. It's important that the elders, once this church is established, look and say, yeah, this is the man we want being the pastor of this church. And they'll call Ben to be an assistant pastor. And you, the congregation, will say, yes, these are men we want as our preachers, as our pastors, as our shepherds. But it'll be you. And you have a say over things like budget and property and buying. You'll have a say in all of those things, okay? We're not there yet. So we're living in a no man's land where we have a temporary board of elders that was put into place before we ever moved down here. And the temporary board of elders is made up of pastors and elders from other churches in our fellowship of churches. It's about accountability. Okay, so this decision was basically me saying, this is where I think we need to go, talking to Ben, calling a couple of those temporary elders and saying, this is where I'm at, and them saying, yeah, we're behind you, okay? So I know that's a lot. Just to reiterate, shutdowns and mass mandates and vaccine mandates and interstate lockdowns and all that kind of stuff right now is not going to impact 
Church of the King gathering for the worship of the living God. We're focused on the spiritual health of us in this room and of greater Evansville. And we're not going to stop meeting to worship. And we're going to leave matters of vaccines and masks to the individual conscience. And we're not going to fight about it. We're not going to argue about it. We can disagree about it. Okay. But we're not going to fight about it. And one, one last word, just while I'm still in like extended family business time. Okay. A word of caution for all of us. If you are one of the people in this room who's getting fired up about masks and vaccines and how the federal and state and local governments are impinging on your personal liberties and threatening the freedom of your Christian conscience, I want to remind us all of something, okay? And that something is just a big picture thing, but we have to have it in our minds. We still live in a country that for 50 years has slaughtered its unborn children under the protection of the law in the name of personal liberty and right to privacy. And that's the beginning of our sins as a nation before a holy God. So if your chief values are personal liberty, regard your values rightly. Regard your outrage rightly, okay? Not that you shouldn't be upset, but put it in its proper place. We all need to remember that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to care for the widow and orphan in their distress the most helpful, or helpless and vulnerable among us. Okay. A just society protects all the rights of all its citizens. And a society that will not protect its most vulnerable citizens, anything goes. Okay. Anything goes. And that shouldn't surprise us. Standing up, waiting to stand up until it finally touches us is standing up too late. Okay. Family time over. What does that have to do with today's passage? One, I don't care. We're family, church family. That's what we want to be. So sometimes we just need to talk about that stuff. Two, I do, I do think it connects. And I think we can see it in today's passage. Sometimes that's just the way that God brings things together for us. So let's read the passage beginning in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. <clears throat> My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Excuse me. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away, for jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray for your church in greater Evansville, and in our state, and in our nation, and in the world. We pray that everywhere today, where your word is preached, that it would be preached faithfully that ears would hear the goodness of the good news of Jesus 
the eyes would be open to see the greatness of what he's done for us, that lives would be transformed. Be with your ministers, make them bold and faithful and true. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, especially for the churches in our fellowship, for the encouragement and strength they are to me, and I hope to all of us here as examples of faithfulness and as partners in the gospel. Thank you for giving us the ability to be held accountable to the teaching of your word and to living in light of it. We pray that you would have mercy on our nation as we face difficult times and challenges, that you give us repentance for our sin and rebellion, for our rejection of wisdom and reproof, for our rejection of the way of life. We pray especially this morning that you would give us repentance for the many ways we've embraced folly and embraced the path of adultery. Help us this morning to honor you, to grow in humility and in godliness. Give me wisdom and faith and zeal as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Surprise! A book written to teenage boys is circled back around to sex. Surprise. Guess what we come to next week? More sex. Including the Sermon on the Mount, this will be our fourth time that the passage of Scripture we've come to has dealt directly with sex and adultery. And next week will be the fifth. (laughs) We've not been meeting for a year. Our first Bible study was like October of last year. I don't know when we hit the adultery passage in the Sermon on the Mount, but this summer, this is the third time. And next week will be the fourth, just this summer. Don't worry uh, if you have little kids in the room. This week won't be like the last. This week will be like PG, okay? So far this summer, we've spent a lot of time taking Proverbs on its own terms. We have these little exhortations or sermonettes that are delivered to teenage boy, right? They need to grow in wisdom, maturity, and self-control, all good things, all the kinds of things that we need, no matter how old or young we are. So we've just been taking them on their own terms. Martin Luther was once asked why he preached the elements of the gospel so often. And he said, well, when you stop coming in here looking like somebody who doesn't believe them, then I'll stop preaching them. And we're American Christians. Maturity and self-control are things we need to hear. The apostle Paul wrote, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. That's what he said to the church at Philippi. Apparently he wrote the same things a lot. Maybe they complained about it. He said, well, to write the same things, no trouble for me. It's safe for you. You hear the same things over and over again. Maturity and self-control are things we need to grow in. When we all are grown up into mature self-controlled Christians, maybe we can stop talking about it. But we've been letting Proverbs speak on its own terms, even though we're not a room full of teenage boys. There's also a place for stepping back and taking the bigger principles at play in a passage and coming to understand things more broadly. We're going to do a little bit more of that today than we've been doing, than maybe we're used to doing. So let's open up to the beginning of our passage. We're going to spend most of our time actually on listen. My son, keep your father's commandment, forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, they, anybody have a footnote next to they? Is there one up? Nope. Anybody have a footnote next to they? I do. It says literally in Hebrew, it, three times in this verse. Hebrew is a a gendered language, so instead of it, it's actually she. That matters in in Proverbs, okay? It changes the way that you hear things because uh, wisdom is given to us as a woman. And the father is speaking to teenage boys, so hear it this way. When you walk, she will lead you. When you lie down, she will watch over you. When you awake, she will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. 
and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Reproofs. Here's another thing we've had a lot of this summer. (laughs) Warnings and reproofs. Anybody warning doubt? It's okay to admit that you feel that way. I feel that way. A lot, a lot of warnings, just over and over and over again. Ben like grouped three warning passages, passages together in his sermon last week. It's warnings and warnings and warnings on warnings. I feel that way. I, part of me comes to another warning passage and I think, man, more warnings about basics. <laughs> Can we get on to something more encouraging, something more gospel-y feeling, something that's going to warm my heart instead of warm, warn me? Solomon doesn't think so. Not if you're concerned with wisdom, not if you're concerned with the way of life, because what does he say is the way of life? The way of life is reproofs of discipline. As a different translation, my favorite translation puts it, stern rebukes. Who likes stern rebukes? Did you say you do? I said nope. Yeah, okay. No, nobody likes stern rebukes, right? They're painful. They come at our egos. What happens when you reject stern rebukes, though? For a long time now, I would say that we as a people, and not Church of the King, you guys are great and perfect, and this doesn't apply to anybody in this room, I'm sure. That's a joke. I've soundly rejected the place of stern rebukes in our lives. The one thing you can get a sound rebuke for is giving a stern rebuke, right? You mess things up, you ruffle feathers, you break the peace. Church in America for years in many places has rejected the warnings of scripture. Our nation has rejected them. And we as fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and children, as a consequence, are inclined to follow that example and reject them too. No one's ever liked them, but we're especially soft. Do you feel it? Do you feel that way? Do you feel just like the, if I say the word rebuke, do you feel recoil? Why is that? Nobody wants to be wrong. Nobody wants to be wrong. And nobody wants to be told they're wrong, right? (laughs) In private, you'll be wrong with the things that you feel it's okay for your ego to allow you to be wrong about. Are you? (laughs) No, I don't think any of us are, right? We want to be nice people. We want to be around nice people. We're Midwesterners. What we have up on the coastal pl- on the coastal elites is they're jerks. We're nice. <laughs> we have a lot more up on them than that, I promise. But um, to be a Midwestern Christian is to take biblical love and kindness and substitute niceness for it, right? If I'm nice, everybody else is nice, we'll all like each other, everything will be great, and conflict will be the only thing that indicates there's a problem. And the problem is there's conflict. Avoid, cover, deny, attack the instigator. We can all gang up on that guy because he caused conflict. It's been that way for a long time. So then what happens in a culture like that when you say something hard? What happens? You become the bad guy. That's right. You become the bad guy. If you love somebody enough to say something hard, you become the bad guy. And so then it becomes hard to love people and be and say the hard thing, doesn't it? Because nobody wants to be the bad guy. And then if you don't love people enough to say the hard thing because you don't want to be the bad guy, if you can't say to somebody you're on the path to ruin, what happens? (laughs) You are the real bad guy who lets somebody follow the path to ruin, right? You become the real bad guy. And it becomes a cycle. 
a spiral, a feedback loop, where everything gets worse and worse and worse and worse. The harder it is even for you to say to somebody that you're on the path to ruin, the harder it is for you to see the path to ruin. You just want to shut your eyes to it, right? Just want to not see it. Pretend it's not there. And then what happens is we all cultivate blindness. We all cultivate blindness about the way of life and the path of ruin. We don't want to see, you don't want to see, nobody wants to see anything here. And then what happens? Well, the more that happens, the more somebody who's willing to say you're on the path to ruin, the more somebody who's willing to step out in love and say the hard thing looks like a crazy person, right? Looks insane. The more isolated that person becomes, the harder it is for him to actually persevere in saying the hard thing. And then the harder it is for all of us to receive it when he does. And the easier it is to reject it because he's just a crazy person. He's outside the pale. We all just want to be nice people. Can't you just be nice to me? And here's the answer. Sure. We can just be nice to each other if we want the world to fall apart. We can just be nice to each other if we want society to crumble into violence and sexual chaos. Sure. We can reject stern rebukes and pretend like actions don't have consequences. Sure. We can watch each other all slide to ruin. But ruin is still there. The consequences don't go away. We still, as David said, become the bad guy by conspiring with each other to just be nice. So can we do that? No, not really. Not if we love each other. Solomon says, reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Stern rebuke, the way of wisdom. It's not easy, but it is good. So here we are in church, in a church that says that's what we want. That says that's why we're here. Let truth be told, right? Yeah, we have t-shirts that say, let truth be told. We wear the t-shirts. We want that kind of love. We say we do. We want to be real. We say we do. With ourselves, with God, with each other. We want others to help us be real with ourselves and with God. But it's easy to say. It's easy to say. It's easy to be open to correction and reproof when we don't think we actually really need it. When we think everybody out there is who needs it. It's easy when we think we're beyond it. It's easy when we're just blind and don't see where we actually do need it. It's easy when we have our perfect little explanations and justifications for all the things that let us off the hook. But here's the thing. We are all, every one of us, actually really, really bad at knowing ourselves in the places where we need to change and grow and improve. We're all actually really bad at that. The most self-aware of us are actually still really bad at that. The most self-aware of us cultivate our self-awareness so that we can have walls to protect you from the real things that we don't want you to see. So we can protect ourselves from the real things we're not ready to admit to ourselves that are real. We can tell ourselves we're self-critical and then focus our criticisms on the places where we think we can take it feel good about ourselves and be able to trot out examples to other people of how self-critical we are while still protecting the things that need to change. That's just the way we work. It's hard. That's true of all of us on some level. And that is why we need God's word because it doesn't discriminate and it doesn't let us hide. It exposes everything. And that's why we need our moms and dads because they know us. And it's why we need pastors and elders and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in the faith. Because even if we take God's word by ourselves, we'll find ways to hide from it. 
We need each other. We can't just do it on our own. That's why this church has and needs accountability, even outside of this body. That's why we're part of a fellowship of churches. Accountability has to happen organically among, uh, in, in a culture where we're committed to real accountability. Structural accountability means nothing unless that's there, but it matters too. That culture of accountability has to be real. I see you, you see me, we see each other, we see someone on the path of ruin, we speak. And when somebody speaks, we receive it as love. Because in the world we live in, it is way harder for 99% of people to step out on a limb and say something hard than it is for them to stay quiet. Unless they just decide that they're going to rail, right? You get on social media and screw up their courage and be a paper tiger. But to look you in the eyes and say something hard, even if they're wrong, it's love. Most of the time that will motivate somebody to do that. It's about all, all that can, because it's hard. So here we are in this passage, and all I was thinking as I was looking at it is we're stepping back, and again, we've got my son, keep your father's commandment, forsake not your mother's teaching. The tenderness of my son, again, always the context for love and warning and discipline and rebuke, right? Tenderness is always the context. Love is always the context. My son Keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Mom and dad are here. This is coming from mom and dad together. They're adding their weight. They're adding their experience. They're talking to their son about adultery. Mom and dad have experienced some things and they're still together. Listen to wisdom. Cling to her. When you walk, she'll lead you. When you lie down, she'll watch over you. When you awake, she'll talk with you. The commandment is a lamp. The teaching a light. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Love them. Okay, now in the passage itself, to what end... Do we love reproof and listen? Well, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. If you reject reproof, the way of life, you'll be overtaken by adultery. It's the implication here. Church that rejects reproof will be overrun with adultery. A society that rejects reproof will be overrun with adultery. That's the way things go. How does college work? You get out of college, you go off to school. You get out from underneath the yoke of discipline and instruction. What happens? I'll tell you what happens the first week of school. And maybe not this year because of whatever. What happens the first week of school every year at IU? Welcome week? Anybody? IU? One, right? Welcome week. It's insane. It's insane. In some dorm rooms, baskets of condoms just out in the middle of of the dorms. Pizza X driving around campus with like pornographic images on trucks, throwing condoms to kids with their brand on it. Culture Fest, drag show where we crown Miss Gay IU right in the middle of it. It's just like, you're free. Come be a slave to your lust. It's what we want from the beginning at IU, apparently, is you're here. Let's make you a slave to your lust as quickly as possible. Let's play on the fact that you're out from underneath mom and dad. Let's get you away from discipline. Let's get you away from the way of life. Let's get you a slave to your lust as quickly as possible. That's like all the first week of school is for freshmen. All that's thrown at you. The Kinsey Institute makes a uh, presentation during uh, the freshman induction ceremony that every freshman has to attend. Throw off restraint, throw off wisdom. Throw off the warnings you've heard from your parents, indulge. 
but they're selling slavery, slavery to your lusts, and it ends in death. This week's passage is specifically a warning against adultery and not just any adultery. We were more general in chapter five, the forbidden, right? Here, this is committing adultery with someone who's already married. In context, talking to young men, talking about another man's wife. So just big picture, really quickly, the rest of this passage, because we're only four or five verses in. The adulteress has two main tools. First is her flattering speech. She's going to flatter you. She's going to tell you what you want to hear. Ladies, a man will tell you what you want to hear. They'll make you feel like they're into you. They'll make you feel validated, loved, respected, appreciated in ways that you aren't in other places. They'll flatter you. The other tool is beauty. The other two tools be do not desire her beauty in her heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. She's enticing. Okay? He's enticing. Don't desire that. Now there are four warnings. Okay? This is nothing we haven't heard over and over and over again, right? Don't take a step. Don't go in the door of her house. Don't take a step in that direction. Don't desire her beauty in your heart. Man, I will kid you not. You know how perverse a world we live in? Somebody actually wrote to us and said, well, I was listening to a thing and there's this Christian podcast where the man says it's okay to look at other people's wives sexually and to share, like, I'm not even going to, it's just so perverse. Can you help me understand? It's like, can I help you understand what's wrong about it? Do not desire her beauty in, her, in your heart. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent is guilty of, adul- of adultery. Why do we have to talk about this? Four warnings the cost of adu- uh, about the cost of adultery. The first is that the price is severe. It will cost you your life. The price of a prostitute is a meal. The price of an adulteress is your life. It's severe. It will cost you your life. One. Two, the price is inevitable. You will pay it. You will not escape it. As surely as a man puts fire in his lap, which is the literal translation, will be burned. As surely as a man who walks on hot coals will burn his feet, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife will pay out with his life. As surely as the man who jumps off the bridge thinking he can fly is going to smash into the rocks. Thrill, wee, I'm flying. The end is coming. It's inevitable. Severe and inevitable. Third, the consequences are unending. No one despises a thief who steals because he's hungry. He'll pay for it, right? If he gets caught, he'll pay for it. But the man who goes after another man's wife, there will be no sympathy. There will be no end to his shame. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Consequences are unending. For the price will be enforced mercilessly. Some things you can get away with or get off the hook for. In Old Testament law, there are a number of things that have capital offenses. According to the law, there's only one thing that you can't have your capital offense commuted for, and that's murder. Okay, so I've committed a capital offense. I can make restitution one way or another and get out of having to die. Adultery is one of those things. Solomon says, don't bank on it. Don't bank on that man accepting any restitution. Don't bank on it. He's going to be merciless. You will reap what you sow. The jilted husband won't accept restitution. Not if he's a man who loves his wife. Okay. 
Chapter five, don't mess with anyone who's not your wife. Today, don't mess with somebody else's wife or husband. Another intense warning about adultery. It will destroy you. A couple weeks ago, Solomon said, hey, yo, if you're thirsty, drink water from your own cistern, from your own well. It's good. The joys and pleasures of marriage are more than enough to satisfy you. Today, he doesn't give that to us. He just holds out a warning. You will be destroyed. But that brings me back to the top. Because again, at the beginning, this right here, keep your father's commandment, forsake not your mother's teaching, bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, she will lead you. When you lie down, she will watch over you. When you awake, she will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. That's the hope held out in this passage for us. If we give ourselves to God's word and God's wisdom, if we give ourselves to walking in his ways, if we bind it around our necks and on our hearts, if we give ourselves to each other, if we give ourselves to the way of life, to stern rebuke when we need it, if we can actually be that for each other, we can protect each other and help each other. And God will walk with us. Wisdom will lead us. Wisdom will watch over us. Wisdom will talk with us. Wisdom, God's wisdom will be our close companion, which is to say the Lord will be our shepherd. If we make reproof our way of life, he will lead us. He will watch us. He'll be our companion. Through his word, which is stored up in our hearts, through his rebukes, through his word and through the rebukes of his people, he will be with us. In our love for one another, as we speak to one another, no matter what temptations assail us, that will be what protects us. That is how he works. That's what we want, right? Right? Yes, please. It's what we need. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth of it and the wisdom of it. And we do pray that you would give us soft hearts, tender hearts, so that we can receive it, so that we can have our hearts pierced by it so that we can see the ways we must change so that we can see when we're on the path to ruin. Pray that you would give us faith to love one another in this room and to love each other in coming days. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.